We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, Jorge, did you have a good holiday break? I did. We were hiking near volcanoes, swimming under huge waterfalls, scuba diving. It was a whole adventure. Sounds like you'd agree with the rest of my family. They prefer adventures to vacations, which sometimes I think can be more exhausting than our regular schedule at work. Would you prefer physics adventures? (laughs) Not really. I mean, they like to go skiing, which seems like a highly dangerous physics adventure. You ski? I don't ski. They ski and I stay in the cabin and bake treats. Oh, I see. You prefer to do chemistry while they do physics. (laughs) That's your vacation. (laughs) That is the one part of chemistry I do like. Yes, kitchen chemistry. (laughs) Well, if you could take a physics adventure anywhere in the universe, where would you go? Would you visit a black hole? Dive into a neutron star? (laughs) You know, I think the best place to visit in the universe is right here on the surface of the Earth where the fewest things are trying to kill you and we have the highest chocolate concentration in the universe. I get the sense you're not much of an adventurer, (laughs) are you? You and my family have finally figured that out. I think we've known this for a while now, (laughs) Daniel. Guilty as charged. Jorge Cartunis and the author of Oliver's Great Big Universe. Hi, I'm Daniel. I'm a particle physicist and a professor at UC Irvine. And the kind of adventures I like are mental adventures. Mental like radical, like, whoa, dude, that's <laughs> mental. Or like trips to the mental institution. No, nothing that's going to drive you mentally insane. I mean, adventures into our understanding of the nature of the universe or frankly, just fantasies about orbiting black holes without actually going there. Mm, You prefer ecotourism, not (laughs) ecotourism. A fantastical exploration of the universe rather than a real one. Mm, Wouldn't you rather have both though? Wouldn't those both be fun? Like if you go, if you could go to a black hole, you'd be, you'd be there enjoying it and it would also be stimulating your mind (laughs) stretching your mind as it Mm, may if you go to the black hole and send me back the data then i can have the mind stretching without the body stretching (laughs) yeah that'd be a bit of a stretch though (laughs) like i'm not sure you'd be the first person i would tell (laughs) i know you have a whole country of physicists you collaborate with (laughs) 
But anyways, welcome to our podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio. In which we try to stretch your mind with the grandest mental adventure of all time. We want to take the entire universe and squeeze it into your brain. We hope that everything that's out there in the universe, from the tiniest particles to the biggest stuff out there, can be made sense of, can be explained, and can be folded into a short audio stream and explained to you. That's right. We want to be the vacation from your everyday living of the universe to Thinking about the universe, taking your mind on giant journeys across the cosmos and into the deepest secrets of the universe. If you desperately want to understand how the universe works, how it all comes together, what rules it follows without reading a whole textbook filled with mathematics, then this is the right podcast for you. Or unless you're a mathematician, in which case that sounds like a vacation to them, probably. <laughs> this podcast is a vacation from pages of equations. <laughs> or I guess if you want to spend your uh, vacation sleeping, you could pick up a pretty good uh, math <laughs> physics book. <laughs> Some of those are riveting. Like, oh my God, what derivative are they going to take next? I can't even predict. <laughs> yeah, it's all a big cliffhanger. <laughs> but yeah, even in your vacations or your holiday breaks, you are probably wondering what's out there? What's out there in the universe? What's going on? How does it all work? Because part of being human is wanting to understand everything you see, whether you're on the ski slopes or hiking up the side of a volcano or in your kitchen cooking up a treat. There are rules that the universe follows and we want to understand them. So everybody out there asks questions about how things works and wants to know the answer. And we'd love if you shared your questions with us. Any questions you have about the physical universe or volcanoes or baking, send them to us to questions at danielandjorge.com. Oh man, did this just turn into a baking podcast? <laughs> You're the one who brought up baking, man. I never want to talk <laughs> Wait, about chemistry. <laughs> You're the one who brought up baking. Oh no, that's true. You baked true. it into the intro. You're right. That's true. No, I'm guilty. You're the one who made it about chemistry, but I did bring up baking. Yes. <laughs> now, do you think about chemistry when you bake? That's my question. Yeah, you know, that's the part of baking I actually don't like because it seems like, oh, the temperature just has to be right and then it has to go up and then down and some magic happens and the texture changes completely and the whole thing can be very frustrating. Mm, yeah, tasty. <laughs> if it works out, it can be delicious. <laughs> well, the part I get hung up in is just following the recipe. Whenever I see like ounces, I'm like, ounces? Is that weight or volume or, or <laughs> teaspoons? What is that? It's the units, man. Mm, the units, yeah. But anyways, everyone does have questions. We all have questions since we were little kids, as we grow older. And the questions just seems to get bigger and bigger as we think about the universe and everything in it. So on this podcast, we tackle lots of different questions, but our favorites are your questions. The questions that bubble up in your mind as you live in this universe and think about your next vacation. So to the on the podcast, we'll be tackling... Listener questions... 48. Now, Daniel, is there a theme to these questions today? Are they about baking or scuba diving? <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of physics in scuba diving, actually. It's part of the certification process. Yeah. Today's questions are all about vacations and cosmic destinations. Wait, did you say bake-cations or vacations? <laughs> I said vacations, but I'm never going to go on a vacation again without thinking about it as a vacation. <laughs> yeah, there you go. You can bake it into the name mm -hmm. and... Uh, and the baking. I'm going to bake my way through that vacation. But yeah, so these questions are all about traveling to distant and interesting places across the universe. Do you think people are uh, cooped up in, in, during the holidays and we're wondering about where they can go <laughs> in the universe? I think people just like to imagine themselves in various parts of the universe. What would it be like to be near a neutron star or to go visit a black hole or to see an antimatter black hole? What would the actual experience be like? I think people are frustrated by being trapped on the surface of the earth and want to actually go and experience the rest of the universe. Mm. Well, we have three awesome questions here about white dwarfs, about destroying a whole planet. I'm not sure what kind of vacation that would be. And also one about antimatter and whether it matters in the universe. And so let's jump right in. Uh, our first question comes from Trey from Trabuco Canyon, California. Hello, Daniel and Jorge. This is Trey in Trabuco Canyon, California. I was hoping you could help me and my wife resolve a little uh, disagreement about our packing for vacation next year. You see, we really want to go to the system Sirius B, uh, which I believe is a white dwarf. And I'm trying to tell my wife how the rocket equation basically means we have to pack as light as possible. 
she's determined that you can't go on vacation without bringing sunblock. And I'm trying to explain that, you know, Sirius B is a white dwarf. There's no nuclear fusion happening anymore. I think that means there's no UV radiation, the kind that causes sunburn. So I think we can save some of our uh, suitcase space by leaving that at home. So please help us solve that uh, question. And uh, if we do have to bring the sunblock, what SPF would you recommend? Thank you so much. All right. Great question, Trey. And um, just to let you know, we're not qualified marriage counselors, (laughs) right? I'm not. I mean, we can help inform the decisions you make in your marriage, but no. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think we're qualified even for that? What would our wives do? (laughs) Would our wives agree? I'm terrified to ask them that question. But, you know, in the same way that like science can inform policy, right? We can help people just understand the nature of the situations they're getting themselves involved in without actually recommending a course of action. Well, I wonder if we should decide with his wife, just, you know, in his best interest here. <laughs> you think that's always the best advice, side with your wife? <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're always wrong. Your spouse is always right. That is the key to a happy marriage. All right. Well, we just got a little as long, bit as long of as insight. As they follow it, too. If they follow it, too, then, it, then it'll be a happy marriage. Yes. Everybody compromises more than 50%. Sounds like a good (laughs) situation. (laughs) Everyone gives in 100% of the time. (laughs) That's love, man. That's love. All right. But then you have to actually decide, are you bringing the sunblock to visit Sirius B, right? Decisions actually have to be made. All right. All right. Let's get back to the question here. Trey uh, seems to be planning a vacation with his wife and he uh, wants to go to a white dwarf system and he wants to know if he should bring sunblock. That's the basic question, right? Yeah, that's right. He wants to know basically how bright would it be near there? Is it safe to be near a white dwarf because there isn't fusion happening inside of it? Basically, what's it like to be near a white dwarf and what gear do you have to bring? Well, he mentions the system Sirius B, which he believes is a white dwarf. Now, is it a white dwarf, Daniel? Series B is a white dwarf and it's the closest one to Earth. So it's a good choice if you want to go visit a white dwarf. So he is pretty serious about it. <laughs> he seems to be. <laughs> serious. He seems to be serious. <laughs> then he wants to go to Sirius B. <laughs> but yeah, so it's the closest one. How close is it? You said it's the closest one? Yeah, it's just under nine light years away from here, which is not really a practical trip for Americans, at least, who only get two weeks of vacation. But if you want to see a white dwarf, it is the most accessible. All right. Well, let's dig into the question, Daniel, and let's start maybe with the basics. What is this white dwarf? And do you need sunblock if you're under it or above it? Yeah, white dwarf is a really fascinating object. It's basically the end point of stars, right? Stars we think of as huge burning balls of gas, fusion happening inside them, converting lighter elements into heavier elements. But like anything that uses fuel, eventually it will run out. It will fuse all of the available materials and no longer be able to do that fusion and sputter out. And the end point of a star depends on how much mass it started with. Smaller stars end up as white dwarfs. Bigger stars become neutron stars. Even bigger stars become black holes. Mm, So this would be a star that's not big enough to turn into a neutron star or a black hole when it runs out of fuel. So what happens when it runs out of fuel? Does it collapse or does it just like poof? Or it just stops burning. Sort of all of those. I mean, a star when it's burning is a delicate balance between gravity that's trying to collapse it into a black hole and fusion, which is pushing out, creating radiation and preventing it from collapsing into a black hole. But then the fusion runs out, right? And so no longer is it able to sustain it. So it does collapse into a much denser object. A typical white dwarf has about the mass of the sun, but the volume of the earth. So it's really a very, very incredibly dense kind of matter. Mm. Is it it like a big collapse, like a supernova collapse, or is it just like a, let's just crumbles into a denser object? It's not like a supernova collapse. It's more like the core of the star is left over. Like when a star is burning, the fusion initiates at the core. But then as heavier elements gather at the core, the fusion tends to move to the outer layers. In the later periods of the star, the outer layers where the fusion is happening, those get puffy and the star gets really big. And eventually it just blows out all the outer layers and leaves behind sort of the core of the star, which is this hot blob of super dense matter, like the ash from all the fusion that's left behind. Mm, And so it's super dense, super hot, but not as dense as a neutron star, like things are still in atom form or are they broken up 
So yes, it's not as dense as a neutron star, and it doesn't have enough gravity yet to collapse into a black hole because there are still some forces there pushing back. What exactly is the nature of the matter? We call it electron degenerate matter. It's still atomic matter in the sense that there are like protons and neutrons and electrons there, but it's all merged together really, really tightly. So it's not like they're really individual atoms. The electrons occupy these sort of like energy levels that are spread out across the star. And it's actually the electrons that are keeping the star from collapsing further into a neutron star. Mm, so it's a giant like rock or is it like a giant soup of electrons and, and protons? It's a giant, very dense soup of protons and electrons. And the electrons, because of the Pauli exclusion principle, are trying to avoid ending up in the same quantum state. Because remember, electrons are fermions and fermions can't occupy the same state as other fermions. So the electrons don't want to be squeezed down to like lower energy states because then they would overlap with each other. And that results in a kind of pressure because electrons are forced to stay at higher energy levels, like further up the ladder in order to avoid colliding with electrons at the lower energy states. And that means that they're whizzing around and basically pushing on the star and keeping it from collapsing. If you had more mass, you would squeeze those down and those electrons would be captured by the protons, turning them into neutrons and you get a neutron star. But there isn't quite enough gravity to make that happen. Mm, so it's a giant dense soup of super hot stuff, right? It's super hot, right? It's super hot, yeah. Like how hot is it? Well, there's actually a big range from like 4,000 Kelvin up to like 150,000 Kelvin. You mean like if you look at all the white dwarves in the universe, they have a range of temperatures. They do have a big range of temperatures, exactly. Mm, and what, what does that range depend on? Like how old they are or how big they were or how hot the star was? How many TikTok followers they have? <laughs> So what we're talking about here is the surface temperature, and that depends, yeah, basically on the mass. So there's a bit of a range of the masses of these things. And the bigger they are, the hotter the surface temperature, because there's no longer fusion going on at the heart of these stars, right? This is like when fusion is done, these protons are not squeezing together to make heavier elements. That's already happened. You already have like carbon or helium or whatever has been fused. You don't have the temperatures needed to fuse the heavy elements that you've gathered. So fusion is sort of done. It's not actually burning. It's just sort of like after a fire has gone out, you still have embers and they're still sitting there hot and glowing. That's essentially what a white dwarf is. And eventually it will cool down. It will radiate away all of its heat out into the universe and it will become a black dwarf. Wait, what? Eventually? Eventually, we think every white dwarf will become a black dwarf. We think it takes a very, very long time. Is there a range where like it turns into a gray dwarf? <laughs> and is this sort of like Gandalf and the wizards where they have different powers? <laughs> We don't know because we've never seen what happened and we don't think there's been enough time in the universe for this to happen. It's sort of counterintuitive, but it takes a long time for things in space to cool off. You think of space as like cold and if you go out there, you freeze to death, right? Well, it's actually harder to lose your heat in space because there's no air out there to rob you of your heat. There's no wind. The only way to lose heat is to radiate it away, to glow away your heat. So for example, satellites and the space station have to worry a lot about cooling. It's complicated. Anyway, it's going to take like trillions of years for white dwarfs to turn into black dwarfs. So we think the universe eventually will have lots of black dwarfs in it because like 90 something percent of all stars in our galaxy will become a white dwarf. But there hasn't been enough time for any of them to form. Wait, 97 percent? That's almost all the stars in the universe. All of them will, will become white dwarfs and eventually black dwarfs? Yeah, because it depends on the mass of the star. Smaller stars become white dwarfs, bigger stars, neutron stars, even bigger stars, black holes. And most of the stars in the universe are actually less massive than our sun. Our sun is on the heavier side. Most of the stars that are out there in the universe right now are red dwarfs. They're smaller, they're colder, they're redder than our sun, which is yellower. So most of the stars in the universe have the right amount of mass to end up as white dwarfs. Mm, now, why do they call them white dwarfs, I guess? and not red or black, or fuchsia, or cyan? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. You know, white isn't really a color. It refers to like a broad spectrum of colors. And so you can ask like, well, what kind of light gets emitted from a hot blob of rock sitting out there in the universe that's like four to 150,000 degrees Kelvin? And it's very broad, right? These things glow, not because fusion is generating photons, but just because they're hot and hot things in the universe 
glow. It's called black body radiation. Everything out there with a temperature other than dark matter does glow and generate radiation. And that radiation depends on its temperature. So the higher the temperature, the higher the frequency of the light that you generate. And so white dwarfs happen to be in a temperature range where they generate mostly white light, at least the part of it that we can see. Mm, all right. Well, then let's answer now. Trey's question was if he went to this solar system, Sirius B, which has a white dwarf in the middle, and they're there vacationing, do they need to wear sunblock or uh, are they safe without it? <laughs> well, no surprise, Trey's wife is correct. You need to bring some sunscreen because even though there's no fusion happening, Sirius B is a hot blob of rock and it is radiating in the ultraviolet and it will give you cancer if you get too close. Mm, I feel like eventually, but like how bright is a white dwarf? Like if our sun collapsed and was replaced with a white dwarf... How bright would it be? Would it be like as bright as it is now, our sun, or would it be would it would it be sort of really dim, like you know, maybe the the sun at sunset or sundown, or as bright as the as the moon? So the typical white dwarf is hot and dim and very dense. So mostly they're not as bright as our sun. Some of them are like one ten thousandths as bright as our sun, but some of them are like a hundred times brighter than our sun. It depends on the mass. Oh. Now, what, what, but what is Sirius B then? Because that, that's the question Trey wants to know. His marriage depends on it. So Sirius B is just about the same mass as our sun, but it's like a 20th of the luminosity of our sun. So it's not as bright as our sun. So it depends on how close he wants to get. I mean, that's still pretty bright. A 20th of the brightness of our sun is not a very dim object. Mm, I see. So it's, if it's about the same mass as our sun, then you probably want to be orbiting it maybe at around the same place where the Earth is, which means that mm -hmm. if they were vacationing mm -hmm. there, it would be pretty dim. Like they should bring some uh, uh, some headlamps or something. <laughs> It'd be like twilight all the time. Exactly. Uh, then would they still need sunblock? They still would need sunblock because these things are pretty hot and they actually do emit significantly in the ultraviolet. Some of these, including Sirius B, also generate x-rays. So if they have no atmosphere to protect themselves, then they're going to just be exposed to the UV. Mm, it sounds like there's a lot of variables here that we're adding. But like if they were on, on Earth... Uh, similar to ours, orbiting Sirius B, mm. it's almost like they have an automatic SPF of 20 because the sun is 20 times dimmer than the sun. But uh, even in the X-ray and UV range, it would be a 120th or it'd be less maybe because it, it's, it's mostly black body radiation. But the sun is also mostly black body radiation. And so it'd be pretty similar spectrum. Mm, but just 120th. Yeah, just one twentieth. So if they magically transport the Earth to that system and orbit Sirius B at the same distance, yeah, then yeah, they don't have to worry about sunblock. But if they're out in space orbiting Sirius B, then yes, please bring some sunblock. So, well, I guess maybe the answer is that Trey's wife is right. You do need sunblock, but maybe you don't need like a 30 SPF or 50. You just need like a 5 SPF. I mean, just always bring sunblock. <laughs> <laughs> do you wear sunblock even when you sit on your couch eating chocolate? <laughs> I do, yes. I put sunblock on every All day. day. Every day? Absolutely, man. I live in Southern California. Nice. Is that why you look so young and beautiful? <laughs> young at least. <laughs> young at least. Young and as beautiful as I ever was. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I think we answered the question, right? I think you do need sunblock because there is still radiation x-rays and UV light there, but uh, maybe not as much. You don't need as much sun sunblock or as, as thick of a sunblock, SPF. If you're going to bring your planet and its atmosphere with you, then yeah. Yeah. I think the bigger question is, why would you want to go there for a vacation? It sounds kind of dim, <laughs> kind of far. I mean, that's kind of personal. That's between Trey and his wife, right? You don't know what they're into. <laughs> Maybe they like dim places. Yeah. Who knows, man? People like all sorts of stuff. Mm, I guess. I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, good luck, Trey, on your vacation and uh, your marriage as well. <laughs> If you're coming to us for advice, we already have concerns. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're already in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's just turned into like a, a marriage legal advice uh -oh. podcast. Uh -oh. More stuff we're not qualified to talk about. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's get to our other questions about destroying planets and about antimatter. But first, let's take a quick break. Thank you. 
The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. All right, we're answering listener questions here today and also fixing people's marriage <laughs> or making them worse. I'm not sure. It's, it's all a big physics experiment. We're well-intentioned, even if it's clumsy. That's right. We're here to inform, not to uh, reform your marriage. I have performed some marriages, though. I've married people. Oh, nice. And it's valid? Does it work if it's a physicist? Are you a man of the universe? <laughs> I'm an official shaman of the universallifechurch.com. Thank you very much. Oh, is that your title? Shaman? Mm -hmm. Shaman. I got to pick any title I wanted. Isn't it shaman? Sh shaman? If I think of I'm the shaman, <laughs> I get to decide how I pronounce it. I see. I see. There's no requirement. There's no class in how to pronounce the title as part of the uh, qualification process. The only qualification is, can you click this button online? And I pass that with flying colors. <laughs> and that makes you qualified to marry people. Yes, absolutely. Well, you should add that to your, to your title. Physics professor slash... Mm, efficient. Efficient, yeah. Sh shaman. <laughs> or shaman. <laughs> no, I did a few weddings and then I retired permanently. Oh, I see. And how are those marriages going? 
Still going strong? <laughs> no divorces yet. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, you got a perfect record. I do, yes. <laughs> so far. <laughs> Maybe the key is that they've never asked you for marriage advice. Mm, that's probably crucial, yeah. All right, well, let's get to our next question. Uh, we have a question here concerningly about how to destroy a planet. Hello, Daniel and Jorge. This is David from Menlo Park, California. I'd like some professional advice. Say I want to destroy a planet from a distance with a single particle. What particle should I use? It needs to have at least 10 to 32 joules of energy and be stable long enough to travel, say, one light year. Please consider as well what method I will need to employ to increase the particle's energy to that level. Not asking for a friend here, this one is totally for me to advance my nefarious plans. Thanks, and have a great day. All right. At least he's straightforward. He's not claiming to be asking for a friend or anything. <laughs> yeah, I like how he said, like some professional advice. <laughs> yeah, like, like is his job <laughs> to destroy the universe or to think of a way to destroy the universe or think of a way to, to prevent the destruction of the, the planet? I'm not quite sure what his profession is. I think his boss is Darth Vader and he works on the Death Star, right? Oh, or maybe he's Darth Vader's boss. Mm. Or Darth Vader commissioned him as an architect to design a Death Star. <laughs> oh, interesting. I see. He's designer of the future Death Star. <laughs> We're going to work our way into the canon, man. Are we going to get credit? Like, <laughs> is there going to be a little plaque in the Death Star uh, made with information obtained from uh, Daniel and Hora explaining the universe? I don't want any kind of credit there. No, thank you very much. <laughs> but it gets destroyed anyways, twice. Mm, that's true. Yeah. In, in according to the, or three times if you count the, the latter movies, in which case uh, our plaque is gone, I think. <laughs> All right, but this is an interesting question, um, an interesting professional question, I should say. And David wants to know if you want to destroy a planet, like say, for example, the Earth, I imagine, uh, and you had to do with a single particle, which particle would you use? And, and I guess, how would you use it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a really interesting question because first you have to think about what it means to destroy a planet. Like, do you want to annihilate the planet purely into energy or do you just want to like break it up and send all of its bits flying out into space in different directions with enough speed that they like don't gather back together into a new planet? Like, what are the technical requirements for your planetary destruction, please, sir? I see. Yeah, that, start from the beginning. Like, what do you mean by destroying a planet? Because <laughs> you're like, I can help you with, with, with all the whole range. <laughs> <laughs> we got a whole menu here, folks. If you want to destroy a little, I can help you. If you want to destroy a lot, you came to the right place. So I was assuming that what he wanted to do is make it not a planet anymore. Basically break it up into chunks and send those chunks out to infinity with enough speed that they don't come back together as a planet. Didn't want to actually like convert the mass into energy. I see. Because I guess that would be disappointing if you like destroyed a planet and then a few hundred years later it gathers back up into a planet again. Yeah, it doesn't really feel like destroying it if the explosion just like recollapses back into a planet. I mean, probably you still killed everybody on the surface. Maybe that was your goal. <laughs> yeah. But there's still a planet there, right? Uh -huh. I feel like that's usually what people or supervillains mean when they mean, when they talk about destroying a planet. I mean, it depends, right? If you're like building a galactic superhighway through a solar system and you have to demolish a planet because it's in the way, then you really want to break it up into debris. Oh, I see. Huh. Maybe you're building like a galactic particle collider and you just need that space. Or maybe you just need to make place, space for like a new vacation resort <laughs> and go. or a bakery and uh, you got a pesky planet in your way. Yeah, exactly. Trey has commissioned you to build something <laughs> for him to visit. Exactly. And this is uh, interesting. Interesting. And will he need sunblock? <laughs> So this is something we can actually calculate. You can think about like how much energy do you need to add to the bits of a planet to send them out fast enough that they overcome the power of gravity, right? Like we talked about escape velocity. You throw a ball from the surface of the earth fast enough, it will overcome the gravitational energy and fly out to infinity and never come back. Well, how much energy do you need to do to like pick up pieces of Earth and throw them all out to infinity so they all have escape velocity? That's actually a number we can calculate. Interesting. But that's just sending it off. Don't you need extra energy to also break up all the rocks and stuff holding the Earth together? Yeah, you do. But most of the energy is gravitational. What do you mean? How do you know? Like if I try to break a rock with my hands, it's pretty hard. 
but so Switzerland and out into space fast enough <laughs> too, I guess. Uh, is that kind of what you mean? Like the energy it takes to launch a rock away from Earth so that it never comes back is way more than the energy it might take to break it into two. Exactly, because most of the reason that the Earth is stuck together is gravitational energy, right? It's not actually like bonded together. It's just so squeezed together by gravity. It's also too complicated a problem if you think about all those details. There's like too many ways to break up the Earth. Like, do you break into two halves uh-huh. and send them in different directions? Do you break them into ten to the forty-seven pieces? That energy is smaller, I think, than all of the gravitational binding energy. I see. You're assuming, I guess, that it's smaller. I've done some calculations. They're very hand wavy and approximate, but most of the energy you need is the gravitational binding energy, and that's already a huge number. We're talking like two times 10 to the 32 joules. It's an enormous amount of energy it would take to send chunks of the Earth out to infinity. That sounds like a lot, uh, but maybe give us some context, like uh, a stick of dynamite, how many joules can that release? So a single stick of dynamite is like 2 million joules, right? That's like 10 to the 6 joules. And we're talking about 10 to the 32 joules. Mm, what about like an, an, an atomic bomb? You know, if you blew up all of the nuclear weapons that all humans have ever built and even deployed, then it's like 10 to the 20 joules. It's still a quadrillion times too low, like 10 to mm. the 12 too low. Wow. So you need a quadrillion times all the nukes on Earth to really obliterate the Earth. Exactly. When they say that we have enough nukes to like destroy the planet, they don't literally mean blow the planet into smithereens. They just mean to create enough destruction on the surface that everybody dies. Right. We don't literally have the power to blow up the planet. Even like massive collisions that have obliterated all life on Earth have not destroyed the planet, right? Like the collision that extincted the dinosaurs, obviously the Earth is still here after that, even though that had like 10 to the 23 joules. What about like the collision that made the moon? That's a great question because it almost did obliterate the pre-Earth. We think that the moon was formed by a collision of a Mars-like object called Thea with a proto-Earth called Gaia, which is maybe a little bit smaller than the current Earth. And that resulted in like a huge blob of like molten lava, which eventually formed into the moon and then the Earth. And we think that had about 10 to the 30 joules in that collision. So, of course, not enough to obliterate the previous planet that was here because we're all still here, but close, right? Like within a factor of 100. Although it becomes kind of a philosophical question, right? Like if you take a planet and you break it up to bazillion pieces and it comes back together, is it still the same planet? Oh, it's the planet Theseus. That's right, planet of Theseus. <laughs> the old conundrum. So it would take really an extraordinary amount of energy in order to actually blow up a planet. Mm. All right, well then, uh, David's question was, if you could do it or had to do it with just one particle, which particle would you pick and how would you do it with one particle? I guess he wants to do the least amount of work possible or to do it in the most <laughs> elegant way possible. I'm not sure what the motivation or constraints are. This sounds like a really hard way to blow up a planet, to put that much energy into a single particle. I mean, we put energy into particles all the time and it sounds very dramatic. We have a large hadron collider and we have particles from space that are hitting us with a lot of energy. But, you know, we don't typically measure those in joules because there's there's not a lot of joules in those collisions. We're talking about really tiny little particles. They don't have a lot of mass. They don't carry a whole lot of energy. Like the most energetic particle we've ever seen hit the planet has a very large amount of electron volts, but just a few hundred joules. Like it's called the oh my god particle. And it's three times 10 to the 20 electron volts, but that just translates to a couple hundred joules. Mm. How, How much is that like in terms of like a baseball? So a baseball traveling at like 100 kilometers an hour has a few hundred joules. So like you throw a baseball at 100 kilometers an hour, it's not going to destroy the planet, even if you're like Nolan Ryan. Mm. And you're saying that's the biggest one we've seen coming from outer space? Yeah. So like cosmic colliders, which are pretty impressive, accelerate particles to very high energies, but nowhere near the amount of energy needed to destroy a planet. Now, that doesn't mean it's impossible, right? It's possible, David, to accelerate particles to an arbitrary energy. There's no limit on how much you could accelerate a particle. So if you built a really enormous particle collider out there, a galactic collider, you could in principle accelerate like a proton up to 10 to the 32 joules, enough energy to demolish a planet. 
Mm, right. There's no limit because just the faster it goes, the more energy it has. Yeah. There's a limit on the speed, right? You can't exceed the speed of light, but you can always pour more energy into the particle. It's just that as you approach the speed of light, the relationship between speed and energy becomes nonlinear. But there's no limit on energy. Protons can have an infinite amount of energy. They'll never go faster than the speed of light. They'll always asymptotically approach it, but there's no limit on the energy. So you got more magnets and you got more little electric fields to accelerate that proton. You can just keep pushing it until it has an earth-destroying amount of energy. Mm. Now, I guess uh, there's several questions here I think that David is asking. Uh, the first one is like, what kind of particle would you use as a particle physicist, like if you were doing this? And uh, I guess the second question would be how fast do you need to accelerate it? Yeah, I guess I would use a proton because you need something that has a charge in order to accelerate it. We tend to accelerate particles by putting them in electric fields, which pull on them. But well, why a proton? Why not like a, aren't muons super heavy? Muons are heavy, but they don't last very long. They're not stable. So you want something stable because it's going to take a while to accelerate this thing. So then your options are like a proton or an electron. And I choose a proton because a proton feels the strong force. And so when it smashes into your planet, it's going to have a bigger impact. It's going to like collide and interact with the particles of the atmosphere more dramatically. Like what you want is for that proton to deliver the energy onto the planet, not to just like pass through it and create a tiny little hole in your planet that nobody's going to notice. You want it to deposit all of its energy in the planet. And so for that to happen, you want the most interactions possible. So protons a nice choice because as an electric charge, you can accelerate it and its bits inside of it, the quarks feel a strong force. So protons smashing into the earth is just going to deliver that energy. Interesting. Okay, so you, uh, you wouldn't just pick a quark, you'd pick a proton, which is made out of quarks. Well, you can't accelerate just quarks. Quarks can't be on their own. So yeah, the minimum serving of quarks is like a proton. All right, so proton would be your uh, bullet choice here. How fast do you have to accelerate this? proton and what would it take to accelerate something a proton that fast it would just take a lot of money i mean the only thing that limits us from doing it right now is enough money to build a big enough accelerator like we have the technology we know how to do it you just need to build a lot of pieces of your accelerator the way an accelerator works is you just have a lot of little segments each one has an electric field to give it a little push you want more energy you just build more segments so the only thing that limits you is having enough money to build those things and then enough space. Well, like paint us a picture, how big of an accelerator would you need to accelerate a proton to planet killing speed? <laughs> so I actually did this calculation and I thought, well, what if you had an accelerator? <laughs> I know it sounds like you thought about it this a lot. Are you sure you're not David from Menlo Park, California? I have thought about solar system size accelerators, not because I wanted to destroy a planet, but because I wanted to create collisions that could help us like see what's inside the smallest bits of matter and maybe like reveal the Planck scale or whatever. And, and if you happen to get a, a, a planet destroying gun out of it, <laughs> hey, you know. I think that would be a bad outcome. You know, look, science is for people. I don't want to kill everybody. <laughs> you know, who's going to read my paper about the great discoveries we make with this collider if there are no people to read it? Ooh, that sounds like a movie idea. Maybe like we're getting invaded by aliens mm -hmm. and our only hope are particle physicists who oh, can no. build a big enough gun. If your only hope is particle physicists, you're screwed. Let me just say that. <laughs> Nobody's going to believe that plot. Particle physicists save the world. Like maybe in 50 years, some spinoff from one of our ideas could actually be useful, but we can't deliver anything on schedule. <laughs> All right. So you thought about this. How big of a collider do we need to build to make a, a planet gun? So a collider with the radius of the orbit of Jupiter would not be big enough with current acceleration technologies, which means basically you'd need something like around the scale of the Oort cloud or bigger in order to get these energies. Well, I think you're thinking about a circular collider, which is when you build like a circular track and then you accelerate the particle going around the loop, right? You need something that big of a radius because the faster it goes, the harder it is to keep it going in a loop. Yeah, exactly. And the loop is an advantage because then you get to push it lots of times. You can also build a linear accelerator, just a straight shot, but then you only get one push of the particle with, with each of your little segments. But more like a rifle, right? Yeah, more like a rifle. So then it has to be much, much longer. Mm, and if you had to do it that way, how, how big would it have to be given current technology? Because 
This all depends on current technology, right? It all depends on the space you need to accelerate particles. As we talked about in a recent episode about like plasma wake field accelerators, there are some ideas out there that you can accelerate particles much more quickly. So accelerators could be much, much smaller, but those technologies don't really exist currently and don't really work on large scales. All right. So it's possible. And you're saying you would pick a proton as your particle of choice. Yeah, but you'd have to build a collider basically on galactic scales, you know, or interstellar scales at least. And so we're talking about like, you know, well more than quadrillions of dollars in order to build this thing. Well, it sounds like Dave is a professional planet killer. <laughs> Somebody's got money for this. <laughs> yeah, David, you're going to need more paper for the budget on this thing. Trust <laughs> me. Really tiny font to get all those zeros. Well, my question is like, let's say you built this gun and you accelerate a particle to 10 to the 32 joules and you shoot it at a planet. Like, is it going to destroy the planet or is it just going to make a pinpoint hole through it? You know, what happens when a particle hits the atmosphere is it's just like when a meteor hits the atmosphere. It interacts with the atmosphere, deposits its energy, creates a fireball. And so enough energy, then yeah, it's going to deposit all that energy on the planet. It's not just going to create a pinprick in the same way that like the collision that extincted the dinosaurs didn't just like make a hole through the planet, right? It created an explosion. It deposited its kinetic energy on the surface. Same thing would happen here. Well, I'm thinking like a bullet can sometimes just fly through you. Or like if I shoot a bullet through a piece of paper, it doesn't like obliterate the paper. It just makes a hole in it. Would, would maybe like a, a planet, even though it's all rock and lava and all that stuff, to a particle going that fast, would it just be like a piece of paper? It's a good question because a particle going that fast would also see the planet sort of length contracted due to special relativity. But still, I think because of the hadronic interactions in the atmosphere, it would create a big shower and that energy would tend to spread out. And if it spreads out like that, it's not going to create a pinprick. It's going to create like a very wide shower of energy, which is going to destabilize the planet. Right. So maybe... Uh, not a pinprick, but a, a big hole through the planet. Uh, maybe, right? Like it may not even obliterate as we are planning the whole planet. It might just kind of punch a big hole through it and not necessarily send every particle in it, every rock in it flying in, in with escape velocity. Yeah, that's fair. The energy we calculated to obliterate the planet assumes that you're going to use all that energy in just the right way to like push every rock in the right direction. So you need to budget extra energy just in case. You might need to shoot it twice. You, is that what you mean? <laughs> 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 or you might want to invest in two particles, David. That might be a better idea than <laughs> one part, or maybe even lots more particles. Yeah, or make the particle accelerator even bigger. Oh, there you go. All right. Well, hopefully this doesn't help David, I guess. Do we want to help David with this question? I feel kind of conflicted about even answering this question. <laughs> Although yeah. it might lead to uh, enormous funding for a new particle collider. So, you know, win-lose, lose-win, I don't know. I see. It's all a giant uh, ethical uh, <laughs> mess for you here. It's a big conflict of interest, yes. <laughs> yeah. Satisfy my curiosity or destroy the planet? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of do know, though. I kind of do. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a mess. It's crystal no, clear for yeah, you. Exactly, yes. <laughs> we all know what I would do in that scenario. <laughs> All right, well, let's get to our last question. Hopefully, it's not as ethically sticky as this question. And it's an interesting question about antimatter. So let's get to that. But first, let's take another quick break. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, 
and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Right, we are plotting to destroy the Earth and or leave it to go on vacation. Answering listener questions here that listeners like you send in. Daniel, how can people send in their questions? You can write to us to questions at danielandjorge.com or go look at our website, danielandjorge.com, where there's a form you can fill out. We answer all of our questions. You can also tag us on Twitter at Daniel and Jorge and we'll respond. And you take anonymous questions, right? From professional planet killers. Yeah, absolutely. We do not require any ID, although the FBI might follow up with you. I see. Or the NSA. Mm. <laughs> and or NASA depending on how good your question is. And we do answer every question from listeners. And I say that on the podcast all the time and I mean it. And still, when people write to me, they seem surprised when I respond. We really do answer your questions. Don't be shy. All right. Well, our last question comes from Nikolai. And he has a question about antimatter. Could a large amount of antimatter get together and form an antimatter black hole? What were to happen if this antimatter black hole where to collide with a normal black hole of a similar size. Do we have a theory or a model that would predict what happens? Thanks a lot. Yours, Nikolai. So Nikolai wants to destroy a black hole. What do you think about that? Any conflicts of interest? (laughs) Well, he wants to destroy a a black hole. He wants to make an antimatter black hole. But then he wants to smash it into a normal black hole. And I think he's hoping to use that to destroy the black hole. Oh, I see. I see. It's a two-step question. Can you make an antimatter black hole? Now, would an antimatter black hole be an ant? Would be would it be anti-black or would it be an uh, anti-hole? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's what he's asking about. <laughs> would it be like a, a white hole or a black <laughs> uh, a lump? All right, well, let's dig into it. Uh, Daniel, what is antimatter? Yeah, so Nikolai obviously was thinking about antimatter, and lots of people are fascinated with antimatter because it seems mysterious, and it kind of is, right? Antimatter is just like another kind of matter, but it has the opposite charge as our matter. Really, the way to think about it is not that there's matter and antimatter, but that all matter comes in this sort of symmetric set, 
Like for electrons, there's another version of that particle, the positron, which is exactly the same, but has a positive charge. And for every quark, there's an anti-quark. And for the muons, there's an anti-muon. Really, these things are like two sides of the same coin. It turns out matter can come in two flavors. And in our universe, we think things were created in balance, the equal amount of matter and antimatter. But for some reason, we don't quite understand the universe prefers matter. And while most of the matter and antimatter annihilated away into energy, a little bit of matter was left over. And that's why we call electrons and muons and quarks matter and the other stuff antimatter. It's a little bit of an arbitrary distinction. So like, for example, like an antimatter electron, an anti-electron is really just an electron with a positive charge. Everything else about it is the same. It has mass. It's like a particle floating out there in the universe. It just has a positive charge instead of a negative charge. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And like an anti-quark is the same, but instead of electrical charge, it's the opposite in a different kind of charge. Exactly. And you and I are made of matter and the earth is made of matter and the star is made of matter. And we think that all of the universe is made of matter. We're not exactly sure. We can't tell because if there's an antimatter star out there, we think it would operate under the same rules and it would emit photons in exactly the same way a star would. So it's not always easy to tell whether like distant galaxies out there are made of matter or antimatter, but everything in our neighborhood at least is made of matter. Now, uh, Nikolai's first part of the question is, can you make a black hole ant out of antimatter? If you gather enough antimatter, and it all has to be antimatter, right? Like if you mix matter and antimatter, something special happens. So when matter and antimatter meet each other, they can annihilate. Like an electron and a positron meet each other, they can turn into a photon. Like all of the energy that was stored in the motion and the mass of those particles gets converted into that photon. So that's annihilation and that can happen when matter and antimatter meet, which is why antimatter is like a great fuel because 100% of the energy stored in the antimatter is converted directly into like photons. You make a great battery or a great like fuel source for a rocket ship, much more efficient than like chemical fuels or even fusion or stuff like that. But what he's talking about is making a black hole like does antimatter follow the same rules of gravity and make a black hole? And the answer is yes. Gravity doesn't care about your electric charge. Anything that has mass, anything that has energy can be condensed into a black hole. So yeah, you take a big enough blob of antimatter, collapse it down, and it will become a black hole. Mm, an anti-black hole. Actually just a black hole, right? What can you know about a black hole? You can know its mass, you can know its spin, and you can know its electrical charge. So if you take, for example, a bunch of positrons, positively charged electrons, you collapse them down into a black hole, then yes, you will get a positively charged black hole. It's not really an anti-black hole. It's just a black hole made of positively charged particles. There's nothing really anti about it. Well, its insides would be made out of antimatter, you think, right? Like nobody know, really knows what's going on inside of a black hole. Like maybe the, the stuff inside of it is still, you know, quote unquote anti. Well, we don't know anything about the state of matter inside a black hole, as you say. Maybe it's all a singularity, in which case the state of matter is something completely new, right? It's no longer really positrons. And it depends on what theory of black holes you're talking about. But in general relativity, there's no room to like remember that the black hole was made of positrons. Like a black hole made of positively charged positrons is no different than a black hole made of positively charged muons or protons or anything else. It's no different to us from the outside of a black hole, but uh, it's still possible maybe if you're inside of the black hole to, to tell the difference. If general relativity is correct, then no. General relativity says there's absolutely no difference. They are identical. They're as identical as two particles that have all the same properties. From the outside of the event horizon. Even from within, right? Even from within, though you can't see it. But you don't know that, do you? We don't know that. That's assuming general relativity is correct. On the other hand, we're pretty sure general relativity, not correct about what's going on inside a black hole, which is what I'm sure is motivating your question. Probably there's something else more complicated going on inside a black hole because we don't think singularities are real. We think there's something more complex happening. And quantum mechanics tells us that you can't just like delete that information from the universe, that there must be some record of the fact that antimatter was used to create this black hole and not matter because you can't destroy information in the universe, says quantum mechanics. But we don't know how 
how to bring like the quantum mechanics ideas and the general relativity ideas and merge them together into an idea that makes sense at the heart of a black hole. So nobody really knows what's going on behind the event horizon. General relativity says it doesn't matter what was used to make the black hole. Energy is energy is energy. Quantum mechanics says it does matter, but nobody knows who's right about which bits. All right. Well, I think that answers the first part of Nikolai's question, which is that you, you can make a black hole out of antimatter. And you're saying it just becomes a regular black hole. It just has a giant different charge to it. Okay. Now, the second part of the question is, uh, if you take a black hole that was made using antimatter and a black hole made with regular matter and you put them together, would they annihilate? <laughs> I wish they would. That would be super awesome. I would love to build a positive and negative black hole collider <laughs> and, and do that experiment. General relativity says it doesn't matter what went into your black hole. And a black hole made of matter is the same as a black hole made of antimatter. And so this is, would be the same as any other black hole collision. And what you would get is just a bigger black hole. Remember, you can't destroy a black hole with energy. And antimatter is just more energy. Everything is more energy and, and fuel for a black hole. First of all, I feel like it wouldn't be quite the same, right? Because if you had like a giant positively charged black hole and a giant negatively charged black hole, they would be extra attracted to each other more than like most black hole collisions out there in the universe. That's true. Although remember, antimatter doesn't have to be positively charged and matter doesn't have to be negatively charged. You could have black holes made of matter that's like electrons, so it's negatively charged or black hole made of matter that's protons, so it's positively charged. Or you could have an antimatter black hole made of antiprotons so that it's negatively charged. So just because it's antimatter doesn't mean you know something about the charge. They could both be neutral, right? You could have a black hole made of anti-electrons and anti-protons and be totally neutral. But you're right, if you have two black holes and they have opposite charges, they will be extra attracted to each other. Mm, I see. All right. So... Uh, it sort of depends on how you make these black holes. Yeah, there's a lot of it depends, unfortunately, in physics. <laughs> <laughs> we should rename that the name of, of the podcast. It depends with Daniel and Jorge. <laughs> Is it good? I don't know. It depends. <laughs> What's going to happen? It depends. Um, that's almost <laughs> always the answer. Yeah. What's, what's the answer to the universe? <laughs> it, eh, depends. it depends. <laughs> uh, brought to you by Depends, adult diapers. <laughs> But if you collide two black holes, you get a bigger black hole. And that's what's going to happen if you collide a black hole made of antimatter with the black hole made of matter. Again, according to general relativity, which we think is probably wrong about some of the crucial details here. And we don't really know how to do gravity for particles. And really, matter and antimatter is a question about particles. So we're sort of tiptoeing around like the fact that we don't understand quantum gravity and how to do gravity for particles at all. But assuming general relativity is correct, which probably isn't, then two black holes will just make a bigger black hole, regardless of whether they're made of matter or antimatter. You don't get like a white hole, you don't get an annihilation or anything fun like that. Uh, you just get a double black hole. <laughs> well, I, I think it's interesting though to think about like maybe there is stuff interesting things going on inside of these two black holes when they merge. Like maybe, you know, the antimatter and the antimatter black hole is annihilating with the matter and the matter black hole. But maybe we just wouldn't see it because it's all happening inside of like a double black hole. So nothing would ever come out of it, right? Is that possible that like they do get annihilated, but they stay within the hole? Yeah, imagine you have a black hole made of electrons and another black hole made of positrons and the two black holes merge. So now the electrons and positrons can sort of see each other and interact. Then what happens? They annihilate to a bunch of photons, which are trapped inside the black hole. And the black hole doesn't care at all about the state of matter. Photons, electrons, positrons, it's all just energy. And it's really energy that bends space-time, remember, not mass. So in order to create a black hole, you need energy density. And photons can do it just as well as electrons or positrons. The state of matter is kind of irrelevant when you're outside the event horizon. Right, right. Like uh, maybe they do, it does get annihilated, but it's like annihilating something inside of a black hole. It stays in the black hole. It stays in the black hole. All those photons are just trapped inside anyway. They just move towards the singularity. Yeah. Oh. So I guess that answers Nikolai's question. But I don't want to discourage you, Nikolai. If you have access to an antimatter black hole factory, then hey, build one and shoot it at a black hole. Let's see what happens. <laughs> yeah, far away from here, uh, potentially. <laughs> Do not collaborate with, uh, with our previous question asker, please. 
but maybe ask Trey. He can bring it along on his trip to Series B, which is probably far enough away for everybody to be safe. <laughs> yes, but would they need sunblock to witness <laughs> this collision? No, because they'd be trapped inside the black hole. They'd be perfectly safe. Oh, there you if go. If Einstein was right. And if Einstein was wrong, they'll be fried. So, hey, either way, we, <laughs> we find out the answer. Either way, their marriage is over. <laughs> probably. <laughs> they were doomed when they came to us for advice anyway. That's right. It was, it was over long before it was featured in this podcast. <laughs> All right. Well, awesome questions here today. Lots of curiosity about what happens in, in these extreme situations in the universe, I feel. Like what happens if you accelerate something really fast, a, a single particle, or what if you collide to these different black holes, or would you need sunblock to go to a distant star? Yeah, it's these extreme situations that really teach you about what the rules mean when you stretch them, when you push them, when you try to overlap them, when you ask what happens when they conflict with each other. Those are the edge cases when you really learn about the supreme rules of the universe. And that's what we love here in the podcast, extreme curiosity <laughs> and extreme adventures. Mental right. or physical ones. Yeah, we're going to be the official podcast of the X Games next year. <laughs> yeah, brought to you by Mountain Dew. <laughs> Black Hole Dew. <laughs> we could probably cover a lot more physics if we were <laughs> both Hot Top and Red Bull or Mountain Dew. All right, well, we hope you enjoyed that. Thanks to all of our listeners for sending in their questions. And thanks to our question askers of today. Although not thank you if you do succeed in destroying the planet. <laughs> but thanks for your curiosity. It's your curiosity that drives this podcast and all of Science Forward. So keep asking questions and keep sending them to us to questions at danielandjorge.com. You really will get an answer. We hope you enjoyed that. See you next time. For more science and curiosity, come find us on social media where we answer questions and post videos. We're on Twitter, Discord, Insta, and now TikTok. Thanks for listening. And remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.